This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of September 8th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 147 of Defender Radio. Education is part of the foundation of a solid democracy, and in Canada, we take that responsibility quite seriously. We have some of the best elementary, secondary, and post-secondary schools in the world, and millions of young Canadians are back to the books this week. But every day we have important lessons to learn outside of the classroom as well. This week we're taking a look at two different, and equally important, types of education. We'll be joined by Tyler Jamieson, an Ottawa area advocate who last year ran a series of successful demonstrations promoting the fur-free message at college and university campuses. Then we'll hear from Coyote Watch Canada's Leslie Sampson, who will tell us how coyotes are going back to school, too. To get us started this week, we're joined by Tyler Jamieson. Last year, Tyler connected with APFA and took on some of our resources, like literature and traps, and hosted numerous fur-free leafleting events at the national capital's top universities and colleges. He's at it again this year and joined us to explain why he's motivated to host these events, the response he's gotten, and how other advocates can get involved. Why don't you give me a bit of history about the demos that uh, you and your associates have been doing in Ottawa? Um, Yeah, sure. Last year... Um, we did um, a series of demonstrations, I guess more of, a, more of an outreach, um, talking to students about fur and um, especially fur trim. That was one of the major goals of the campaign to um, educate the students about fur trim. Because I think a lot of people, sometimes they'll actually have uh, a fur trim jacket, and they don't really know it. If you're wearing a you know a folding fur coat, you know you're wearing fur. But I think um, fur trim is kind of insidious that it's it's something that a lot of people um, can be wearing and not really be aware of it. So um, a big goal for last year's campaign, um, it was on two university campuses, Carleton and Ottawa U, and one of the goals was to basically educate students about fur trim. Um, and that was kind of the first goal. And the second goal was hopefully that this information would encourage them to um, look for altern- alternatives and to not buy um, fur, fur trim clothing, um, you know, in the fall when most of them are buying these coats or, you know, in the future. So that was kind of the goal for last year's campaign. We did about, we did about um, six events last year, three on each campus, and it went really well. And we thought we would do um, the same thing again this year. Um, so we're going to do uh, six events. Um, and hopefully it'll, uh, I mean, we had a great response last year with the students. The students were definitely re- really receptive. And um, um, I'm sure the same thing will happen this year. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to it. And it, it did seem, I came up and I, I spent about an hour at one of your uh, one of your events as I was dropping off some pamphlets and uh, a trap for you guys. And I noticed a lot of students, even if they didn't seem to engage, they would take a pamphlet and you could see them reading over it as they kind of walked away down the streets. Um, do you think students at a, at a university or college campus are more prone to pay attention to some of these social justice and animal welfare issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, 
I think university students, college students, um, are kind of more open to any social justice issue. Um, I don't think it really matters um, what it is, whether it's things to do with the environment or LGBTQ or um, things related to uh, animal rights issues. Um, so um, I think they're at a time in their life when they're kind of, you know, questioning things and trying to figure out their place in the world. And um, I found that they're very open-minded. And in relation to the fur issue, um, you know, you talk to them and, you know, um, I always, you know, kind of talk to them a little bit about, I usually kind of use Canada Goose as a reference because everybody knows Canada Goose. And I talk to them about the, the trim on the hood and, um, you know, just talk to them about that. And they kind of all see, you know, they recognize that that's not really functionally necessary for the jacket. It's something that's decorative and they all get that right away. And then we show them, um, you know, images of um, coyotes in a leg hole trap. And we kind of talk to them about that. And the students are very receptive and they get it right away that this is something that these animals are suffering um, for something on the jacket that's really um, unnecessary. And it's just something that's um, a little fashionable decorative piece that um, doesn't really, it doesn't need, doesn't need to be there. And um, these animals are just um, suffering um, for fashion and uh, they really get that. And uh, it's, it's nice to see. And it's, um, it's, it's great. Well, something I always find interesting is Canada Goose spends a lot of time trying to spin this stuff and they'll, they'll contact stores and consumers and explain that, well, the fur is really important because, you know, it's, it's wind resistant, water resistant, and these are humane traps and this and that. Do you ever have uh, uh, the people you meet sort of come back at you with some of that information? Yeah, sometimes <clears throat> they'll often... Um... You know, they'll talk about how, um, sometimes they'll talk about how leg hold traps are illegal in Canada. And um, we'll talk to them about that, how, you know, you know the padded leg holds are, are legal in Canada. And, um, you know, they, they don't use the ones with the, the jaws anymore. Those have been um, banned. But uh, leg hold traps are legal in Canada. And we talked to them about that. And, um and sometimes they talk about roadkill, that these are animals that have, you know, been hit by cars or whatever. And um, so it's uh, it's not, this is an issue of trapping that these animals are all um, mostly killed accidentally and they're, they're roadkill. I've heard that argument. I don't know if you've heard that argument. I heard that, I heard that several times last year. And uh, things of this nature that are, um, they're just not true. And um, we kind of talked to them about that. And um, so we've definitely experienced that, but... Um, not, not very much for the most part, um, the students, um, you know, they usually, they take a leaflet and off they go. Um, and the ones that stay to chat, usually it's a really, um, you know, they're, they're definitely open to what we're seeing and they can kind of see that, um, fur trim is just something that is, um, really unnecessary suffering. And, um, so the, the number of people that have kind of come up with objections like you're talking about, very small, very few. And as a uh, someone who has spent time in the school system uh, as a teacher at the college level with aspirations to continue in that, and uh, like you said, you're getting your master's in education, what advice do you want to send out to, to both, I'd say, other teachers and students who want to engage more in raising awareness on the fur issue? Well, I think... 
students and students who want to get involved, um, especially at um, the you know high school or um, college university level, um, I think that there's a lot of things that they can do, you know, um, and getting in touch with an organization like Fur Bear Defenders, you know, who maybe can um, supply some um, literature to um, these students, you know, you can send an email. Um, that's what I did. I sent an email to Fur Bear Defenders and asked for some literature and you guys sent me some literature and I think students can do the same thing. Just um, get in touch with Fur Bear Defenders or other groups that um, provide information about this issue um, and they can um, talk to the school about setting up a table in their school and um, they can go outside and do leafleting. That's what we do mostly is doing leafleting on the campus. And I think that that's um, a great way to engage um, students at um, their schools. Um, for teachers, um, I think um, they have to, I think it's great to engage your students and try to find ways to um, weave these issues into your curriculum. Um, especially, you know, there's there's certainly parts of um, the public school curriculum that do talk about environmental issues and talk about wildlife issues. So I think that there's ways um, that teachers can um, engage students with these issues um, that ties into the Ontario curriculum. And I'm sure it's true um, in other provinces as well. Um, so um, I think that uh, that's kind of a great um, opportunity for teachers that they don't have to go outside of the curriculum to um, bring up these issues, they can, um, you know, just do it in their regular classroom, going through the regular um, curriculum. And so, uh, I think that's great. You can get connected with Tyler's events by following the links on this week's Defender Radio blog. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Millions of animals are killed for their fur each year in Canada. You can help stop the cruelty. Join the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals today and be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves. Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com This is Defender Radio. 
It's not just youngsters of the two-legged variety that are back to school this time of year. As Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada told us in a recent interview, coyotes learn everything they need to be successful, such as social boundaries, hunting skills, and their iconic vocalizations at the heels of their parents and pack. So we are going to talk about um, coyotes and how they teach their young. So why don't we start out, uh, tell me a bit about how uh, coyote families are structured. So based on our um, several decades of observations and bearing in mind that each coyote family is quite unique to their particular territory, but the, the family structure in and of itself consists of the alpha male and female, the mom and dad, and then of course um, the litter of that year. And oftentimes it can include uh, former uh, siblings from a litter from the year before or even two years before. And it's uh, not an uncommon occurrence for an aunt or uncle to be become part of um, the initial family pack once uh, new pups arrive for that that uh, season. And what's interesting about coyotes is that the entire family plays a role in rearing the pups, unlike a lot of other canids like uh, uh, domestic dogs or wolves, where it's primarily the, the birthing mother. Exactly. And it's really quite a phenomenal event to be blessed with witnessing because that the alpha male, um, you know, any any person that's had the opportunity to observe um, that that pack dynamic, that social bond that is integral to the survival of of the coyote family, um, when they see the male bringing food home to the mom who's in the den nursing the pups, and then also regurgitating that food so that it's semi-solid for the pups once they're, you know, able to um, consume that semi-solid foods, it's really quite something. And so the other thing to bear in mind too is that keeping the family units together, both the mom and the dad are critical for those parents to be available to provide those survival skills, to um, provide a safe environment where those pups can explore and, uh, you know, seeing the role playing out in uh, the territory and so forth. So we really do encourage uh, that these really critical carnivores in our communities are allowed to thrive with their mom and dad and whatever other dynamic to the family has been added in terms of, you know, aunt and uncles or um, older brothers and, uh, and sisters from a previous litter. And domestic dogs, I know, um, as puppies, learn their sort of social boundaries by playing with each other. And there's a lot of um, exclusion and nipping and things like that to kind of set boundaries and say what they do and don't like. Is that similar for coyote pups? Absolutely. And, you know, to witness the pups vying for a stick or one of the uh, stolen toys that mom or dad or aunt or uncle have brought back to the den area, like a feather or balls. Um, they typically will play with toys that our domestic canines also play with. So they're really great um, at, they're, they're working their world out based on tactile, the smell and the senses. So their whole world is about 
um, you know, mousing and play fighting and also learning how to be coyote, learning how to be part of that family unit that maybe one day they're going to come back and visit when when they're older. What role do the, the parents play in teaching the young how to hunt? Because uh, I know, as I said, I, I understand a lot of the social behaviors and the rules are set by what other pups will put up with or not put up with. So when it comes to that incredible hunting skill they have, how do they learn that? Well, they're accompanying. Once they've, uh, you know, they're exploring the mouth of the den pretty much around four weeks. And by that time, depending again, you know, each pack is is unique and the timelines in terms of uh, biologically when, you know, they're weaned from mom, um, you know, that is dependent on a lot of variables in the environment. But essentially they're exploring at the mouth of the den and then venturing farther out. So eventually they are accompanying mom and dad, basically learning those hunting skills. They're out doing field trials. And so mom and dad are demonstrating what is appropriate food sources for the pups. And I mean, anything that's moving, whether it's a cricket or a snake or a toad, is fair game for a a coyote pup to play with and learn about that particular, um, you know, animal in the environment. Vocalization plays such an important part. And not only is it a bonding activity, but it's also a, a most definite survival skill. So pups are learning at a very, very young age to exercise their vocal cords. They're learning what it is to communicate, how to define what those messages are. And that's critical for them to defend their territory when they're older or communicate with family members or a transient coyote passing through. So that vocalization and that time for song, we often get an increase in uh, reports of vocalizations when the pups are really exercising their skills in the summer months and into the fall. So not only is it a physical learning curve for our young pups, but also for their connection to their world through their vital communications, such as that vocalization. But they will emulate what the parents are doing. And therefore, uh, it's really, um, you know, important that we do not interfere and provide, um, you know, anthropogenic food sources because we do not want to interfere in that natural process of the parents teaching those young what are appropriate skills, what what is appropriate behavior, living so in, in such close proximity with human beings. And you had already touched on something that I think is very very important to come back to, especially w- with a focus on this. Um, this portion of what we're talking about for coyotes and growing up is the disruption of the social uh, bonds of the unit. We know that as mesopredators, when persecuted, their populations actually increase, their ranges increase. Uh, and th- this is a phenomenon seen with skunks, raccoons, and other animals like that. But what impact does that have on the ability of a coyote pup to learn to, to fend for themselves and develop their own pack in the future? So if, you know, if, if an alpha uh, male and female are taken out of the picture for that family dynamic, 
those young pups, much like our human families, when there isn't the appropriate role model, the parent there to teach those fundamental skills, it's pretty much left to these young juveniles to work their way through the environment. And a lot of our roadkill samples um, really demonstrate there can be early dispersal, which can put them in harm's way, crossing road systems. They learn those skills, especially um, close to the urban and rural divides. And when you look at the landscape, the coyote pups that we study and film, they're learning those skills to cross the roads from their parents. And there's been, you know, a very long-standing um, opportunity to look at how those parents teach the skills to survive in the environment where they are. You take the parents out of that and things become quite difficult for those young. And they need the family for protection. I mean, there's, there's a lot of other dangers in an environment, especially living in, in urban settings. And that uh, plays into something else uh, as we're going forward, too, is the, um, the conflict issues that come up. And this is something that you and I have talked about for years between each other. And um, we've, uh, we've done some investigations together and done a lot of exploring and writing together on the subject. And I would imagine that if a coyote's parents, one or both, is not available to teach them how to hunt successfully, that's when you're going to start seeing a lot more conflict happen in both rural and urban areas. Absolutely. And I mean, it's proven over and over. You know, with, without having the, those vital um, role models, which are the parents, and the female is dependent on her mate, to provide nourishment for her to feed her pups in the den. And then also they're looking out and defending that territory and the pups are learning those skill sets, which they will carry with them when they eventually disperse from their home territory. It's critical that uh, we as, you know, community members that are, um, you know, not wildlife, that we understand the role that we play in really assisting and understanding and tolerating the changes that take place within a family that relies so heavily on the alpha male and female. And it also then disrupts that territory, opening it up for other individuals to move in. There can be some biological setbacks in terms of when um, the female, you know, is going to mate, which can also have an impact on the overall health and balance of an ecosystem. And you and I have talked a lot about uh, various conflict situations, and we often end up sitting around and just guessing even at times about some behaviors. But we know that coyotes can be taught to keep away from humans and keep away from certain areas through things like hazing, um, and so on. Is that something that they will also pass on to the young if the family stays together, that humans are bad or this is not a safe place to go for food? Absolutely. I mean, you look at other species such as crows that, you know, define people that are really a threat. Uh, they're, they're transferring that knowledge onto the young. And with coyotes, it's a very easily... Um, transferred knowledge from parents to young 
and but but again if there is a pile of food put out in the field and coyotes are encouraged to feed there and then their pups are following mom and dad or aunt and uncle out into the landscape they're going to go to those areas and especially once human beings are introduced as the food dispenser then the messages are blurred the lines have to be concise in what we're telling wildlife by our behavior and our actions and when it comes to hazing um, I think you know as far as our the coyotes that we've um, had the pleasure of filming and putting up those trail cams we know that they're they are creatures of habit in many ways too so as much as that is a great thing for them and as far as for research purposes it's great the other thing is that we can easily you know kind of train them to come to the the um, food dispenser and so we don't want to do that we we don't need to help them find their food the pups are able to and pups are naturally curious and so are the the mom and dads the adults in the in the pack are quite curious too so you know when when it comes to hazing I think this this has to be a consideration, but by no means can it be the be-all, end-all. We have to, once again, go back into that arena of what role are we playing in creating um, some, you know, not appropriate behaviors with our wildlife. So we're very much responsible for the education of young coyotes, too. Um, Now, Right now, five- and six-year-olds of the two-legged variety are heading back to school. Uh, What age are most coyote pups we're going to be seeing? Uh, You and I are in southern Ontario, but we've got listeners uh, all the way to the West Coast, as you know. Uh, What kind of, well, what age point will they be at now, and what kind of behavior will they be displaying uh, as we move into September? So when we look at the timeline for for their their mating season is typically January to March, and when I'm using the the generic term coyote, but we're not we're looking at the eastern coyote, and this and the same can be said, you know, for um, you know their smaller cousin. I mean, you're looking at a, a mating ter- a mating time of uh, late January, right till March, depending on you know what's happening in the environment, and so right about now they are really exploring quite well in the environment and you know it it used to be a common um, conclusion that the coyote pups dispersed in the fall but that's not necessarily true and it again is dependent on on what's in that territory what's taking place are mom and dad still alive there's so many variables that impact coyote behavior so well, if they're born in, you know, uh, May, April, May, they're out there now accompanying mom and dad on those hunts. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're dispersing, but usually in the fall or, or late spring, there's uh, dispersal patterns that can be observed in coyotes. We, we have often observed uh, reunions between former uh, family members around the time when the pups are being born and especially around the mating period. So reports come in, um, footage comes in of a increase in the pack size. And that again goes down to um, families coming together, they're celebrating. uh, And then, you know, shortly within the two week period, those, again, those family members disperse and it becomes the, you know, the mom and dad with the pups. So 
right about now, I mean, they're fully, you know, fully weaned and they're able to do some pretty good hunting. Our roadkill samples demonstrate um, in areas that typically, because the pack is dispersing, they're man- maintaining the same territory. We found that most of our samples of um, animals that have been hit by vehicles are females, roughly around eight months of age. So uh, there's been other research done on that, and, and some researchers have concluded that males seem to be the more prevalent gender to disperse first. But in our situation, in the Niagara region, that's what we're seeing females dispersing and consequently being hit uh, by vehicles. So, you know, there's so much at play in, in coyote living and, you know, what's taking place, the dynamics not only within the family itself but in the environment. And I think when there's a constant pressure um, and persecution and in Ontario, I mean, it's 365 days a year. So the family units really to to have an opportunity to look at a family that's thrived and has been together and had litters over a five, six, seven year period, it's pretty rare because of that continued, um, you know, hunting, trapping and snaring of these animals 365 days a year. And my final question is probably going to be a bit of an obvious one, but um, since we're all talking about going back to school and things like that, and kids are going to be walking home for the first time, perhaps, what should young people know about seeing a coyote, be it a a young coyote or an older coyote? First of all, always share your sighting with your parents and especially at school with your teachers and the principal. Uh, And secondly, just never, ever, ever turn your back and run. You'd be as big and loud as you can and stomp your feet. And most definitely, you know, if you're eating your lunch, you always clean up your uh, garbage after. You don't encourage wildlife to stay. And be thrilled about it and give the wildlife their space because if a coyote has been provided food by people, they might tend to want to stay closer to humans and especially kids with with lunches and so forth so you've got to make sure the schoolyards are clean the walkways are clean and there's communication about sightings and really look at what's happening in that environment so being big and loud and not screaming using your outdoor voice stomping your feet waving your arms slowly back away and make sure you share your experience To learn more about Coyote Watch Canada and their incredible work, visit coyotewatchcanada.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank our guests as well as Brad Gates of Gates AAA Wildlife Control for his ongoing support. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio and APFA, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.